Markman is a psychology professor at UT Austin who studies what makes people tick. He's tackled questions big and small, from commenting on the recent wave of mass shootings to weighing in on why people like cat videos so much online. In popular books and on a blog he writes for Psychology Today magazine and on a podcast he co-hosts, he's full of surprising findings. I was struck recently by his comments about mindfulness. He's not against meditation, and he agrees that taking steps to slow down and reflect without snap judgment can have benefits. But he also points out that such practices are not universally helpful. In a recent study with prisoners, for instance, researchers found that mindfulness techniques increased criminogenic thinking, meaning it heightened the tendency of some prisoners to see themselves as more deserving than others and and insensitive to the impact of criminal behavior. And even in a classroom setting, mindfulness practices are not helping creativity, according to some research. I recently talked with Markman about how these and other insights can help educators. He might just change the way you think about things like growth mindset, comprehensive testing, and encouraging students to make mistakes. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, we're talking today with Art Markman, a cognitive scientist at UT Austin and a blogger, podcaster, and author of books about how the mind works and how that impacts our behavior. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. You've become an active public intellectual when it comes to kind of helping us understand how people think. I guess my first question is, why do we humans seem to have so much trouble kind of understanding ourselves? Like with all the advances in science, you'd think we'd have our human mind figured out a bit more. Yeah. And and I think when we, we have to answer that question in two ways, right? So the first is is the scientific question, shouldn't psychology be done by now, Right. And, and the answer to that question is no. And, and there's, two, there's two parts to that. One, that, uh, that psychology is just a lot harder than almost any other science. I, I've often called cognitive science the place where Nobel laureates come to die because somebody wins their Nobel Prize in physics or chemistry and then, and then says, I'm going to go fix cognitive science. And then they vanish without a trace because uh, the brain is, is, is a complicated organ to begin with. It's embedded in social systems, in cultural systems, and it's constantly learning. So all of those factors make, make the mind and brain uh, an extraordinarily difficult topic. On top of that, as a science, um, we, we, can't, we can't do all of the experiments we'd like to do because there are certain things that are just unethical. You can't break people. Uh, you, can't, you can split an atom. You can't split a person. You can't raise somebody in a closet so that they don't learn language, right? So, so that also complicates the science. So that's, that's one half the question. Then there's a second half of the question, which is why is it that more people don't know more about psychology in ways that might help them to live their lives? And that's also an interesting question. And it has to do with the fact that when we systematized education about 120 years ago, uh, we, we had to lay down a science curriculum and the three mature sciences were biology, chemistry, and physics. And so they made the cut. A lot of other sciences didn't, including psychology, which in the early 1900s, it just barely rested itself free of philosophy. And so, uh, and so we don't teach a lot of psychology, certainly K to 12. Maybe in high school you get a little. Maybe in college you get a little. And as a result, people don't learn much. 
On top of that, the structure of the brain makes it very hard for people to understand themselves particularly well because our motivational centers that drive a lot of our uh, action, those motivational centers are buried deep in the brain. They are brain structures that humans share with rats and mice and deer. And so um, when the, all the complex reasoning and storytelling abilities that we have involve brain structures that are literally built on top of that other structure. And they don't have great access to what's going on in the motivational system. And so when people introspect, when they look inwards to try and understand their own behavior, they are actually telling stories about their own behavior that aren't necessarily perfectly related to what actually drove that behavior, which is why people need to go into therapy, because that introspection doesn't necessarily solve all your problems. Sometimes you need a trained professional to help you to do it. <laughs> and so... And so all of these factors combine to, 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 to keep the brain a mystery, both to scientists and to everybody else. Hmm. And I guess um, uh, all of us fall into these traps, uh, even researchers like yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. One topic that you tackled recently on your blog is, is, that struck me is, is mindfulness, which is, is trendy. And even some colleges are, are, are kind of trying it out as a way to help help students even. Um, but I guess you point out that research suggests that mindfulness is not always positive. And, and I think it's an interesting way to, that you complicate a lot of research, but it's an, one example. But what, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So as you say, mindfulness is a big trend these days. Uh, and, and, and there are a lot of great effects of mindfulness. And, and in particular, one of the things that, that mindfulness training can do, so, so learning to meditate, uh, one of the things that that can do is to make you more aware of some of your own thought processes and to make you a little bit more aware of some of the, um, the, the emotional reactions you have to things in the world. And, and that is associated with better emotion regulation and better, uh, greater likelihood of sticking with your long-term goals. So, so I, I don't, I, I always like to preface this by saying, um, I'm not making the argument mindfulness is this horrible thing that's being foisted on us, but I think we have to understand what it does and what it doesn't do. And so if you look at the research, there are a few areas where mindfulness is either not helpful or perhaps even unhelpful. Um, on the not helpful side, creativity. So, so you could ask the question, if you do a lot of mindfulness training, will you become a more creative individual? And the answer seems to be not so much. It uh, doesn't seem to hurt, doesn't seem to help. What really helps you to become more creative is learning a bunch of stuff and having a wide, broad base of knowledge that you can draw from. So, and that's mindfulness isn't going to help you to get there. Um, another place where mindfulness can be an interesting problem is I, I just, just wrote about a study not long ago uh, talking about what happens when you do mindfulness training with, with prison populations. So if you have people who have a propensity toward criminal behavior, there are lots of thought patterns that they will get into that support that criminal behavior. Things like feeling more entitled than other people to get things, having a disrespect for authority, and, uh, and the willingness to do things that fall outside of societal norms. And, and here's the interesting thing mindfulness has a lot of effects, some of which are about emotion regulation, and that can actually help reduce uh, the likelihood that someone who has uh, a tendency towards criminal thinking 
will continue to engage in those patterns because they will regulate their emotions a little better. However, another thing that mindfulness tends to do is to lead you to withhold judgment on yourself and others. Now, withholding judgment temporarily can be a good thing for most of us because a lot of times it's worthwhile thinking through why should I or shouldn't I do something without immediately jumping to a snap conclusion. However, if you get practiced in withholding judgment about yourself and you already tend to be interested in engaging in behaviors that fall outside of societal norms, uh, maybe a little bit more judging wouldn't be such a bad thing. And so the research suggests that actually uh, mindfulness training in these prison populations can actually backfire hmm. uh, by by reducing levels of uh, of of self judgment in ways that can actually increase this tendency to think in ways that are associated with criminal behavior. Yeah, um, and you've also I noticed written a lot about the idea of the growth mindset, which is is certainly something in schools a, a bit too. And and is is that I mean I guess it's. Maybe it's not as simple as does it work or doesn't work, but what what is your yeah. take on on the growth mindset? This idea that if you you know let someone uh, kind of point out to them that it's it's not that they're not inherently good or bad at learning math, maybe, but that if, with some work anybody can do this, um, and yeah, that that yeah. helping people be motivated. Yeah, and I followed this work a long time. Carol Dweck, uh, who who developed a lot of these ideas, she and I were colleagues together at Columbia University for a while before mm-hmm. she went to Stanford. And I came here to the University of Texas. Um, I think there's a lot of wonderful stuff about the, about this mindset work. So, uh, again, you know, like mindfulness, I want to, I want to kind of lay out both sides. So, so just quickly for people who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, um, you can think about almost any skill that you, that you engage in is either being mostly talent-based or mostly skill-based. Talent-based meaning I'm born with it. Skill-based meaning if I work hard enough at it, I'll get it. And what, what her work suggests is, is that if you adopt a mindset, this growth mindset, which suggests that most things are skills, that you will often work harder in the face of adversity because you will recognize that your hard work will allow you to overcome difficulties. Whereas if you believe something is purely talent-based, then when things get difficult, you think, well, I guess I've reached the limits of my talent. I'm going to give up. And that can have important consequences with retention of students and that kind of thing. Sure. That's right. Now, the question has always been, how do you translate this into things that might happen in the real world? And, and here we run into an interesting fact about a lot of psychology studies, which is uh, I mean, uh, Carol Dweck does a lot of work both with college students as well as with uh, with kids who are in preschools, uh, the, ki- the, the, the students you're likely to bump into both at elite universities and at the preschools that are often willing to participate in psychology studies are fairly high-performing schools. And so one of the questions has always been, how does that research translate when you get into the messy real world? And so I, I wrote about a study not long ago that was really interesting in which they looked at a low socioeconomic status school in India and looked at students there and, and looked at, uh, at, at providing information that would, that would help students to adopt a growth mindset there. 
And there were two findings there that I think should cause all of us who like this kind of work to take a step back and think about it more. And to be fair, Carol Dweck has acknowledged that this is part of her research program. So I, I don't think I, I'm, I'm not criticizing her particularly. But, but there were two findings of interest here. The first was that, uh, that the students who were most helped by the growth mindset training were the best students already. So, so the, one of the things that would be desirable is if a simple training, you know, giving kids, you know, a few hours of training on these kinds of mindsets would help the worst performing students to improve. That didn't seem to be the case in this study. The second thing though, was that for some of those students, particularly those students who the teachers acknowledged were the most conscientious students. This growth mindset training actually decreased their motivation to come to school. They actually had higher, giving them a growth mindset training actually increased things like their absenteeism. And the speculation in this paper was that for some kids who grow up in poor neighborhoods, they come to school because they're good at it. And so they think there's something special about them that makes them good at this. And this is a place they can go to feel special. And when you give them growth mindset training, inadvertently, what you do is to say, well, it's not really that you're special. It's that you've worked hard. And they're not as motivated by that as, as to be in a place where they were actually the special one. And so it actually undermines some of their motivation to continue to come to school. <laughs> and, and so what this means is that we need to really think carefully about how to take the controlled laboratory studies that we do in order to demonstrate that there's something uh, worth continuing with and then work hard to figure out what factors affect the, the whether this is going to actually have an impact on students in ways that will help us to then launch this in a way that helps students, helps the students most in need and, and doesn't undermine those students who, who might be succeeding on other grounds. This is no different than having laboratory studies that suggest a particular treatment might cure cancer, only to find out that it doesn't work as well when you try to actually use that in patients. Mm. So th it's the hard work of applying research. Yeah, from I guess from all of your research and, and careful reading of the literature, what, what do you use the biggest piece of advice that you have for teachers that, that maybe might surprise them about how students learn? You know, I, what I would say is that we, we have a, a, a conflicting set of goals when, it, when, we, when we look at the educational system. On the one hand, we want to train independent, innovative thinkers. And then we want to do that by making sure that all of them get the same answer on the state test. And, and I think that one of the things we need to do is to really think about how the reward structure that is part of school influences the long-term thinking of students. And, and to recognize, for example, that it often takes our students decades before the first time that they have to answer a question that the person asking that question doesn't already know the answer to. And, and so a lot of what we want to do is to give students more opportunities to do things that may not be correlated with grades, 
right? To give students opportunities to make mistakes and to recover from those mistakes. Give students opportunities to answer questions that nobody in the room knows the answer to. Give students the opportunity to read stuff that has no bearing on whatever the lesson plan is at the moment. Because those skills in the long run are the ones that are correlated with success after school. And, and, and that to me is, is, is a real tension. Yeah. Cause one, I noticed, um, in your, in your most recent book that you co-authored called brain briefs, um, answers to the most and least pressing questions about your mind. Um, that one of the chapters in fact is do schools teach the way students learn? And, and what's your answer to that one? I mean, that's a big question. Yeah. And, and what I would say is, uh, sometimes, right. But often not. And, and I'll give a couple of examples, right? So one of the things that, that schools do is that they test on material at the end of units and then not again. And one of the things that we know about short-term testing is that, that studying in the moment for a test that's coming up will allow you to learn the material for the test. But then your brain is basically going to decide you don't need this information anymore if you don't encounter it again. Your brain wants to keep using information when you're forced to keep pulling it out over and over again. And so even though students hate cumulative exams, uh, those are the ones that actually force them to keep encountering the material repeatedly over the course of a year in order to make sure that it gets in there. So, so actually forcing them to keep going back to things that they learned before in an explicit way is really important. I think another part of what schools do, and this gets back to something I was saying a little bit earlier, is that schools teach mistake minimization, right? So, so it, to get good grades, you have to get the answers on each test correct, which means that the kids with the best grades, generally speaking, make the fewest mistakes. And what that teaches us is really good learning is about never making mistakes. But actually, Learning is failure driven when it's when surprising things happen that you're forced to learn new things. And so it's actually the recovery from mistakes that helps people to learn best. And so what we need to be teaching is, yeah, make a mistake, but then you're responsible for fixing it and, and for understanding the thing you didn't understand. It's not enough. Getting a C is just the first step in a process of, of, of actually learning something. Hmm. Uh, not not the not the demonstration that you hadn't learned it. Yeah, isn't it always that that fact that surprises people that like Einstein got bad grades at some point or something? Yeah, exactly. You know, and and I think the other thing is schools tend to be siloed in, in the ways that lots of organizations in the world are siloed. So you know, when you talk to a high school teacher, they don't generally say I'm a high school teacher. They say I'm a high school English teacher. I'm a high school science teacher. Well, once you get out of school, the knowledge that you're going to need to solve a particular problem often doesn't respect disciplinary boundaries, particularly disciplinary boundaries that were drawn up 120 years ago when we were systematizing schools. And so, you know, uh, some schools have really tried to create more integrated curricula in which you can draw on in, in English class something, you know, draw on something that you learned in history. But those are still the exception rather than the rule, in part because the state testing that's often required in schools is still discipline-based. Hmm. And so 
one of the things that happens is students don't necessarily think about, well, how is the knowledge that I have in this class actually teaching me something about all of my life and not just this topic? Uh, we cover a lot of um, technology in education and, and everything from, you know, adaptive learning to all these other, they're trying. And I guess I'm curious, do you, do you feel like that that's a promising way to go about it? Or is some of those best fixes going to be in low tech ways or, or changing a system in a, 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 that isn't just adding technology? Yeah. I, well, I, I think technology is just a tool, right? And so technology alone is, isn't going to solve problems. Uh, it, it could potentially solve a problem. So, for example, um, I think some of the schools that have experimented a little with some of the uh, inverted classroom kinds of, of the flipped of classroom, work, and right, yeah, yeah. Where, where you where you, you you have students engage with the the lecture outside of the class time and then have more guided activities inside the classroom, there's a place where I think actually technology can have a real benefit because why should the teacher deliver a lecture that could just as easily have been engaged with in, in, a, in a more interesting way outside of the classroom and then save the teacher's expertise for helping to debug misconceptions in students. So I think some of those things can be, I think, very valuable. Um, in general, I think technology hasn't been used that well in classrooms, um, certainly at the college level where I teach, you know, MOOCs were all the rage, these massively online courses, which have really not engaged people very much because after you watch a video screen by yourself for about five minutes, you start looking at your cell phone because you're, you're not, there's actually something valuable to being in a classroom with other people. You're much more likely to pay attention if there's 25 other students in the room also paying attention than if there's nobody around and you can do whatever you want. So I can't, I mean, I, when I go home, every once in a while, I will sit and watch television by myself. And after five minutes, I'm on my phone, you know, that's, and, 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 and I'm trying to be entertained, you know? So I, I think that, that, that we have to really, think about how technology can fit with the way people learn rather than assuming that just putting it online or just using a computer to present the information is, is going to fix all of the problems. All right. Well, um, what are you most excited about um, next? What are you, or, or is there a particular line of, of research you're, you're digging into? You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a whole bunch of things going on that are, that are really exciting. I mean, some of it is just continuing the kind of writing that I've been doing outside of academia. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so as you mentioned, the last book we did was Brain Briefs, which is related to a podcast I do called Two Guys on Your Head. And it's just a lot of fun to do this kind of public-facing writing. I'm working on a book right now, tentatively titled Bring Your Brain to Work, uh, that's going to be looking at the, at the psychology of the workplace. Um, and then we have a lot of ongoing research um, continuing. I mean, my own research has focused on issues like motivation and decision making and reasoning. And, and I have several graduate students and undergraduates who are engaged in research projects. And, and I, you know, that's and, and all of those pieces are fun. And, and the, the beauty of being an academic is I don't have to pick one. I get to do all of them. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll uh, we'll put links to your podcast and, and books. And I appreciate your time today. Thanks for talking with us. Oh, thanks so much. This was great fun. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Thanks again to Art Markman. And, and if you want to catch his podcast, it's called Two Guys on Your Head. Of course, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And please take a minute to give us a rating. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week 
with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.